If we ever, like, find ourselves stranded in some kind of arctic tundra, like, like as if it was just, like, down to you and me, I'd probably eat you. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> no, I mean, like, regardless of, like, that population of juicy seals over there, I'd probably still eat you. I'd be a lot easier to catch. <laughs> <laughs> just to be clear, okay, despite that glow of a nearby township over there, I'd still eat you. It totally ma- I can't fight you on this. It <laughs> totally makes sense. Like, I'm talking, even if we were inside some kind of warm, cosy chalet that just happens to be located in an Arctic tundra, refrigerator's full, I'd still eat you. Are you <laughs> gnawing on my leg <laughs> right now? Is that, what I, is that what I feel under the table? I'm <laughs> lucky that the diabetes has taken hold and I can't feel anything <laughs> below my waist. Oh, you might be forgiven for thinking that today's show is all about cannibalism movies. Um, but you'd be wrong, because we're talking about survivalist films. Well, we will be shortly anyway. <laughs> so let's let's dispense with the uh, the welcome and, and say hello to everybody. This is Good Movie Monday, the weekly podcast dedicated to nerdy cinematic ramblings. My name's Glenn Cochran, and I always make sure to carry a small supply of various seasonings and condiments because you never know when you'll be stuck in a frozen tundra forced to eat your delicious sidekick. And speaking of my delicious sidekick, sitting opposite me is Ben Helwig, whose generosity and perfectly rendered meat should go down nicely during those winter months. I routinely bathe myself in cayenne pepper just to give (laughs) myself that extra little kick. Just for you, Glenn. Just for it's you. It's nice going in, but coming out, coming it's another out. story. Last, the ult- it's the ultimate revenge. Last week, we had Melissa Begg on the show for the first time, our newest member to the team. That was a lot of fun. I think that went pretty well. I think so. Yeah, talk about like lifting our energy levels. We should have you here every week. I'm already feeling like falling asleep now because <laughs> she's not here. <laughs> well, of course, for those of you who missed last week's show, then I highly recommend that you backtrack and give it a listen because it was a lot of fun. Um, and then, of course, there's our newer listeners who may have stumbled upon our show more recently. It's good to have all of you on board. Uh, to get the most out of what we do at Good Movie Monday, head to our social media platforms as well because, um, you know, the show may drop on a Monday, but it goes all the way to a Sunday. <laughs> it's, al- it's, it's always there. That's right. So we have lots of bonus content that goes onto our Facebook and YouTube and Instagram platforms and stuff like that. And if you're lucky, Ben will sing for you. No? No. 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 <laughs> You've done it before. I gave my love a chicken. <laughs> it had no bone. Mmm. Ben bone. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, one other thing I want to talk to you about real quickly before we jump into this. Do you have anything you'd like to sell on the show today, mate? Sell? Yeah. You like maybe a big red chair or something? Keep seeing that pop up on my Facebook. I'm glad someone does because uh, <laughs> I get zero views and no one say I've 
like everything that I find myself doing now, <laughs> I do it all for a father who is in his seventies <laughs> and does not understand technology. Just will dish out random demands of sell this, <laughs> sell it. He'll pick stuff up off the side of the road and then demand that we sell it. Like it's worth money. You're like, okay, I'll sell. Nobody wants it. <laughs> so if anybody listening is in the market for a big red chair, uh, go to the uh, contact page. It's a parlor chair. Yeah, it's very good condition. Just go to the contact us page at goodmoviemonday.com and we'll hook you we'll up. We'll hook you up. <laughs> it's going cheap. <laughs> we have lots to get through today. I, I feel like I'm the... Uh, the, the uh, oh, I can't, can't think of his Harry Seacombe from Oliver. <laughs> It's going cheap when he's trying to sell Oliver on the streets. <laughs> well, only seven guineas. Do you come with the couch or do you just come on the couch? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. You could. I don't think I'm overstepping the mark here when I say you could, if technology advanced, and we got we got cloning machines like we have 3D photocopiers now. You could make yourself. Your very own Ben. <laughs> and he has no rights under the law, so you could do anything you want to him. Probably grow up to be an upholsterer. Very possibly. <laughs> and as we've already established, pretty tasty. <laughs> and easy easy to catch. Doesn't take much. He won't put up much of a fight. I don't know how to bring it back to the theme of today's show, but um, I guess I could just say the occasion is survivalist films. Movies about survival. And uh, our special guest today, Ben, is John Keyes, whose latest movie is The Survivalist, which recently got released here in Australia. It's a movie starring John Malkovich, John, Jonathan Rhys-Meyers, and Julian Sands. And Malkovich, gonna, Malkovich. He's going to shed some light on that one coming up soon. Uh, but we've also got our regular segments from Guillermo Troncoso from Screen Realm, who's going to bring you up to date with this week's movie news. Then there's Chloe Ritchie from Movie Night with the Ritchie Girls podcast who's uh, going to be recommending one of her favourite survivalist movies. And uh, Joe Chad and James from the Bonehead Weekly Podcast in America also have some recommendations. And then, of course, there's this guy, Jared Gunn, who's going to keep you up to date with what's been released on Home Entertainment this week. Uh, this is a little little segment for all those collectors and uh, enthusiasts out there. Hey, this is Jarrett and welcome to PE Class. Now it's another big week for home entertainment with a ton of tentpole titles hitting store shelves and the shelves of online retailers like Amazon. They're warehouse shelves and you can find them wedged between two pints of piss. As I heard that Jeff Bezos character, apart from flying to the moon and back, I heard he doesn't like giving his employees toilet breaks. What an asshole. Anyway, Warner's releasing The Matrix Resurrected on 4K Ultra HD, Blu-ray and DVD. And both the 4K and Blu-ray have six featurettes and they both feature Dolby Atmos. Admittedly, I have not seen this installment in the franchise and that's because I got burnt pretty badly by seeing the last two theatrically. I mean, those sequels were absolute shit. Why would they make another one? Well, seemingly someone out there is enjoying it. Moving on to Universal Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, they're releasing Ridley Scott's House of Gucci on Blu-ray and DVD. Now, sadly, this one's not getting a 4K Ultra HD release, which is disappointing, as I saw this theatrically and I really dug it. And I don't mean that in an ironic, so bad it's good, trashy film way. I actually thought it was a pretty solid film with some top-notch performances, but maybe I'm alone in that. Anyway, this one's got three featurettes and it's got DTS HD 7.1 audio on the Blu-ray. Sadly, no Atmos despite having played theatrically in Atmos. 
Then also out from Universal Sony is Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. This one's coming out on 4K Ultra HD, Blu-ray and DVD. This one's a reset of the franchise going back to the first two games and it's helmed by Johan Roberts who you'll know from The Strangers Prey at Night and 47 Meters Down. This one's got three featurettes, they run roughly five to ten minutes each and they're pretty much marketing fluff. It's got Dolby Atmos too, by the way, on the 4K Ultra HD. Then moving on to the last release, it's Coming to America. This is the Coming to America sequel that Paramount dropped to Amazon, and Amazon has an exclusive via their Prime service for a year. Well, it's finally coming out on home end. Sadly though, locally, it's only coming out on DVD. It's also coming out in a DVD double pack with the original, but there is no Blu-ray and no 4K, despite the first film being available in both of those formats. This one's got a director's commentary and one featurette. Anyway, that's it for me for this week, so until next time, stay physical. So survivalist films, Ben, this is a pretty broad genre. Um, in fact, it's not really like exclusive to any particular genre. What, what immediately comes to your mind when someone mentions survivalist movies, like, for example, me? <laughs> well, initially I did think, I like, because I did watch The Survivalist. Yeah. And I thought it was going to be one of those kind of pseudo post-apocalyptic kind of movie uh, searches. Like, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to talk about in this one? Like, I don't, yeah. You know, like some of them are good, some of them are bad, but how many times can you talk about the day after tomorrow? Like, I mean, I can talk about it repeatedly, but I don't think anyone wants to listen to uh, my opinions on the relationship between Jake Gyllenhaal and Emmy Rosam. Yep. Um, or or the, the, and Tamlin Tamita. Like, who doesn't like a movie with Tamlin Tamita? Karate Kid 2, anyone? Um, but uh, then, like when you said, no, it can be... Just interpret it any way you like. Yep. Someone has to survive something. Yep. That's it. <laughs> and I was like, well, in that case, well, maybe I'll do that movie about the first ca- the first AIDS case in America. No. The uh, like some kind of medical drama. Article well, ninety nine. I think or... most people's minds would go to stuff like Castaway and Revenant and things like that. My mind definitely goes to those wilderness movies. You know? Yeah, like I thought it was yeah, like. Bushwhacked yeah. or uh, <laughs> wh- white was it White River? Was it White River? Is that what it's called? What's the the? There's White Water Summer. Yeah, the, there's the Kevin Bacon one. There's I think Two Kevin, Kevin, Bacon, Kevin Bacon's in both. The, of the River Wild. The River Wild. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I, mean, I don't know. That I mean, kind of you, thing. You've also you can interpret it anyway because you've also got like Gravity is a survivalist film. Sure. Uh, open Water would be one. Yeah. Predator. Yeah. Um, Leonard Part Six. <laughs> Well, it's any of them. Well, like, that I mean, you could recall, you could rename that predator. Any movie where somebody hunts someone else <laughs> and they have to survive. Like, I was actually thinking, like, maybe I should do Judgment Night, or you know, something like that. Like, mm. a, you know, as a great, or even like any zombie film. Yep. I, like, I end, I did end up watching World War Z. I was like, <laughs> I could talk about World War Z again. There's a zombie movie coming up in a bit. Um, but suffice to say, the conversation can go in any sort of direction, and it will. But speaking of Leonard Part Six, Ben. Like, I only just realized the other day that the director, uh, Paul Wieland, is a guy that both of us should hold in fairly high regard. Why is that, Glenn? Well, different reasons for both of us, but for me, he directed City Slickers 2. Right. And your reason would be he directed... He jerked off on my chair that I'm trying to sell. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but for you, he directed Bernard's Genie. Oh, right. Well, so he, he shakes his booty like, she, like he shakes his milk. <laughs> he also directed Maid of Honor, but like, I digress. Yeah. 
made a porno. <laughs> Oh, so lots of movies to focus on uh, for today's show. But um, for those of you who keep up with what we do, we have a letterboxed um, account that Ben likes to maintain and keep up to Sometimes. date. Keep Sometimes. Keep up to date, don't you, mate? Sometimes I keep it up to date. <laughs> to be honest, I'm more interested in my letterboxed account than I am in the good... I wish I'd never suggested it. <laughs> Even though we are narrowing down those lists each week and they're getting less, less and less. Less and less films. Like, But sometimes... but. Because I don't hear the segments, <laughs> like you send me the list and I'm like, we didn't talk about that. Why is that on the list? Ben, number one fan of the show. <laughs> well, then I listen, then I, well, then I go back and listen to it. And I'm like, okay. Well, it makes sense now. Yeah. <laughs> well, letterboxed uh, forward slash good movie Monday. I believe that is the way you can find it or just go to letterboxd and look us up. Yeah. just Yeah. That's, that's how I do it every week when I have to, <laughs> I have to put in good movie Monday into the search. All right, so let's get started on a recommendation of a survivalist movie. I'm going to let you take the lead on this first one. Uh, what have you got for okay. people to uh, to track down? Well, look, I went back to one of the one of my favourite films from my childhood, funnily enough, for this. Right, and it was it is a bit of a departure from from the what I would have considered the survivalist genre, but it is. Yeah, and it's um it's from 1957. It's called The Admirable Crichton. Wow, 1957. 1957, when I was a, a wee lad. Do you know, like, like, just to digress for one second, because I put this on Facebook the other day, isn't it interesting that our childhoods, we absolutely adored those films from the 50s and 60s. Well, that's because on, there was the video store, but you didn't get really you were lucky to go to the video store once a week. Yeah. Like, for the most part. Like, you sometimes you'd go more and all that sort of stuff. But most of the time... Our movie watching was dictated by what Bill Collins and what <laughs> Ivan Hutchinson were playing on TV, and you know what? You know what was cheap mm-hmm. for the networks? <laughs> Classic movies. Yeah, I guess it was the the whole slim pickings factor. Harder to come across some films, like so you took yeah. what you could get. But like I feel, we sort of um, we were interested in backtracking that far, whereas. These days, you'd like you to go back 10, 15 years for a lot of kids, and they're not interested in going much no. further, you know? So they, like, don't, they don't acknowledge that 10 years prior exists. So I, I mentioned on Facebook that I, I grew up with, like, um, those magnificent men in their flying machines and uh, the Jaunty Jalopies sequel yeah. and, you know, Heidi, all those kind of, you know, Shirley Temple movies. The Shirley Temple movies? Yeah, I just find that, like, I mean, obviously they're going to remain classics forever, but, like, there's a generation now that just won't bother Well, that's... Them. When I used to work for Bounty Films and we did a lot of classics, yeah. we released a lot of classics on DVD. I remember sa- like I remember thinking it was insane that the studios weren't releasing more of these mm. because literally every day <laughs> someone who loves these films is just died. Yeah. <laughs> like their audience is diminishing so they should get them out as fast as they can before nobody they, remembers uh, and them. And they do sell like to that that kind of market. Like you remember you go through um Shopping centers, and you'll see those little kiosks of like guys that just set up and piss off a couple of weeks later, and they yeah, do all us. those. That was, yeah. That's Banny. Yeah, <laughs> that's Banny. They they supply those guys. Yeah, yeah. No, you're look totally right. But you know, the funny thing is, we went to when when Monster Pictures was brand spanking new. We took out a booth at um, one of those Supernova mm-hmm. or Oz Comic Con or one of those things. Yeah, and we had all our Monster Pictures horror movies laid out, and then just to appease Tony, who at the time at Bounty, who owned Monster Pictures, yeah, yeah. we had a dump box mm. of classics. Yeah. The only thing that sold yeah. were those classics. Yeah. Like people went through them yeah. 
and were ecstatic to find. Some I of get those excited films. when I go to op shops and see the classics more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. And they're, often they're better movies. Yeah. <laughs> and you you don't see them every day. You don't hear about them. JB Hi-Fi for the in general don't bother stocking them. No, the only classics they kind of do now are like the, the sort of the imprint style re-releases and things like that where they're remastered. And, and yeah, they they're co- and they are coming back, but those, you know, a lot of those movies are yeah, 80s, mm-hmm. 90s. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's every now and then you'll get a 70s or a 60s movie like a Glenn Ford movie or, or a Charlton or Heston or yeah. something and you're like, "Okay." Yeah. But they're not and they used to have classic sections, but the problem with Warner Brothers and Universal yeah. and all those all those classic movie studios is that they would rather re-release the same <laughs> 200 films over and over again than dip into the... Like, I used to get into this, like, like Jim Sherlock and I, uh, critic Jim Sherlock and yep. I, would constantly get into these <laughs> kind of uh, whinge sessions <laughs> where, you know, we would talk about, like, why is Get Carter not available? Yeah. Why is... Um, like, people used to ask... When I used to manage DVD collection, people used to ask for Bad Day at Black Rock. Yep. Constantly, mm-hmm. why has Warner Brothers not brought this out? Warner Brothers do not sub license to other people; only they can bring out their own titles. Yeah, why aren't these films out? And you would get letters from them, like Jim Sherlock would complain, and mm. he would get letters back saying, "We have no plans to release this in Australia. If your listeners want this, tell them to pa- to import it from the US." I know it's outrageous, man. So like every time you know some you know bargain basement kind of company would get their hands on sort of like you know what do you call it? Um, public domain stuff even, you know, like, yeah. or even like your, um, what was it, um, To Kill a Mockingbird and stuff like that. They'd always pump it out and it would, no matter how many times they put it out, it would sell every time. It would sell. Anyway, huge digression. <laughs> <laughs> back to, back to your survivalist film. Back to the admirable Crichton. I haven't seen it. Uh, it is, it, look, it is a truly magnificent film. It uh, was directed by Lewis Gilbert, who uh, is also responsible for movies like Alfie and Educating Reader. Oh, so it's not on. like the two characters from Revenge of the Nerds were doing a movie together? Doing a movie together. No, no it's okay. not Lewis and Gilbert. Okay. No, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's Lewis Gilbert. He also did a couple of Bond, a couple of Roger Moore That's Wall where Bond I know his films. name. That's where I know his name. Moonraker, Spy Who Loved Me, stuff like that. Shirley Valentine was a big one for him. Um, and this is fairly early on in his career, though. By, by no means is it his uh, first film. Mm-hmm. And it basically stars Kenneth Moore, who... Um, He's a he's a butler, Crichton, for, at this um, English lord's uh, mansion, and he's the head butler. So if you've seen things like Gosford Park, you, you kind of get an idea of what yep. you know. He's in charge of the household stuff. He is the numero uno, and he basically runs this family, like they're all completely dependent on him. And the family are, are pretty good. Cecil Parker is the is the kind of lord, and Cecil Parker. Uh, is like a super kind of interesting guy. And like once you see this guy, you'll know who he is. He's the king in uh, the court jester. He's in the Lady Killers. Yep. He's in the Lady Vanishes. He's indiscreet. He's like this, like amazing kind of filmography. And he is perfectly cast as as the Lord. And he's got three kind of like they're incredibly rich, so they're kind of stuck up mm-hmm. um, kind of daughters. Um, Sally Ann Howes is one who's truly scrumptious from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Um, I can't remember who the other two are. I don't. I don't recognise them. Um, but um, you know, they're very conscious of the class distinction. Sure. Uh, and although Cecil, well, Cecil Parker is actually kind of ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. Like he believes that the staff are actually real people, and he tries to have these kind of get-togethers where the staff can mingle with the family as equals. Mm-hmm. That both the staff and Crichton is. 100% against this. Sure. He's very much a believer in 
the class system yep. that you know the aristocrats should be treated like aristocrats. He's the Anthony the, Hopkins from Remains of the Day. A hundred percent. Yep. A hundred percent. Well, but he's got a bit more of it. But he also knows that you know they are completely <laughs> dependent on him, and he doesn't have a hard on for Emma Thompson. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> he's pro Nazi, um, but he. <laughs> But uh, and so this movie is set in the early 1900s, gotcha. so pre pre World War One. Yep. But there's you know the um, some kind of incident happens, and Crichton basically suggests that they go on this cruise to get away from, so the Lord doesn't have to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. And while they're on this cruise, there is a storm, and the ship um, basically crashes, and they the him marooned. both he and. Uh, one maid who's she's not really a maid. She's they call her Tweeny because at the time she's just come into service and she's not quite. She hasn't been trained up enough to be a maid, so she's just kind of yeah. like this, like assistant. And she's still a bit common. And she's still yeah, she's yeah. very very common. Got yep. a very kind of broad British accent. She swears. Yeah, and does yeah. all sorts of stuff. It's funny, isn't it funny? All the movies about butlers always have that character. There's always that character. Yeah. And this in this movie, it's it's played by um Diane Salento uh, or Calento. Who was you know Mrs. Sean Connery for a while? She's mm-hmm. in um, The Wicker Man. Yep, uh, she's actually Australian. Mm-hmm. She's uh, she's from Queensland, I believe, um, and she's the kind of maid. But they all so her Crichton, the um, Cecil Parker, and his three daughters Sally Ann Howes and the other two, and two of their bows. Yeah, uh, the two suitors who mm-hmm. are kind of after them. They crash land on the, and it becomes very clear. Like after after the first couple of days, and they realize they're not going to get rescued. Kenneth Moore basically decides, mm-hmm. you know what? I'm not going to take this anymore. Yeah. You know, if you don't work, if you don't do what I say, you know, he becomes very clear that they cannot do any, They cannot look after themselves. Yeah, yeah. To the point where like the, the ship crashes on some rocks and the daughters demand that he go and get clothes for mm-hmm. them rather than food and supplies and things they'll need to survive. And so he, he does it and then they all go hungry that first night and yeah, then they yeah. complain about it. And he's like, well, that's it. Enough's I enough. need to see this. And it's great. And so he just goes off on his own. And then they all kind of come crawling back. And yeah. then it kind of cuts to it cuts to two years later. And they're all, he's now the gov. <laughs> he's the governor. Yeah, yeah. And he runs this island. Fucking sounds great. Uh, and, you know, and then they kind of get rescued. And it's all about them kind of, then it becomes about them re- reintroducing themselves to Fucking spoiler alert. <laughs> well, it, I don't want to know uh, that part. <laughs> Well, it's not. Um, I'm still looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, it's not really like it's not a it's not a surprise. Yeah, sure. Kind of. Th- Sound- it's but Sound- you know he he turns the island into like a Swiss Family Robinson yeah. kind of thing. Like they've got you know. I'm getting that vibe. Yeah, it sounds he's like created indoor plumbing. Swiss Family Robinson meets Troma's Wall. <laughs> yeah, he's created he's created indoor plumbing. It's, it, it is a it, like it, yeah, it is a fantastic movie, and it will in the other in the other movies that I'm talking about mm. on the show. It is very much a what they're surviving is the class yep. barrier rather than yes you know the elements. A lot of components in there, um, very similar to my second recommendation. But I'm going to jump back to 1971 for my first one because um, I, as I always do, I am an R about what I'm going to choose. You know, just narrowing it down to two. Otherwise, we'll have like a six-hour show if we just bang on about heaps. I'm fine with that, and it's it's a letterbox problem for you. So. <laughs> Um, but I'm going 1971, Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout, which I think is a wonderful film starring the uh, 
at the time, soon to be delectable Jenny Agatha. Uh, <laughs> she is, I mean, yeah, I guess no, it's problematic. Yes, that's right. Um, she became <laughs> delectable. She gets naked in it. She certainly does, and that was an issue because that was just before the laws came in about children being naked on film. Right, um, but she's she's sixteen or I think she was fifteen. I think at the time she made at the it. Time. I think yeah. uh, the law may have come in at seventeen, being that age. Anyway, right. uh, regardless, it's of its time. It also was the debut of legendary Australian Indigenous actor David Galapalu, who was about what fourteen at the time as well. Now, if you haven't seen this one, look, it starts out with like such a heavy tone and a heavy note. Uh, as a father and his two kids drive from like Sydney to the outback. And like we'll ignore like the reality of geography there because driving from Sydney to the Outback's not quite that simple because the kids just think they're going out for a picnic. Take a left at Bondi. Yeah, that's right. So the kids think they're going out to enjoy a picnic with their dad and then it turns into this fucking nightmare when he pulls a gun on them and starts shooting at them. And like um he narrow like the kids narrowly escape his, you know, his rage and, and the dad ends up killing himself in the car. So <laughs> these kids whose yeah. dad tries to kill him, then they watch him kill himself. And it's fucking horrendous. And when these kids find themselves lost in the Australian outback, there's no hope of survival for them. But then this indigenous uh, kid comes along, David Glappel, who's on walkabout, which, you know, in indigenous cultures is how you become a man is you go off by yourself and you survive. Um, and he kind of helps them navigate their way, you know, to safety. It's a fantastic story, kind of, of two cultures working together. Um, and I just think this film's got a lot of spirit. Like, it's just, you know... And I think, as I've said before, a lot of Australian films, the good ones... There's lots of good ones, but... When a foreign filmmaker comes in to make these films from a sort of an outside perspective, I kind of feel they have a bit more power. And this, yeah. interestingly, on that note, got directed the same year as Wake in Fright, which was directed by a Canadian. So you've got Nicholas Rogue doing this. He's a British filmmaker. And then, yeah, Ted Kotcheff doing Wake in Fright. But, yeah, Walkabout. Like, you've seen it? No, I haven't. Oh, it's... Um, no, I've never it's, seen it. A beautiful film, and like I said, just surprised. I, did, I didn't know about any of that stuff. Yeah, like, I just thought it was just two kids. Yeah, wandering around in the outback, and I was like, I have no interest in this. Film. These films that are kind of like really almost period piece that we had in Australia at the time, like Picnic and Hanging Rock. They've got these really sinister undertones, you know, and that's yeah. what I love. And this one just gets off to that horrendous start, which makes the rest of the film have a lot of weight, mm. you know. And imagine fucking kid, <laughs> your fucking parent tries to kill you. And then he kills himself and just leaves you in the middle of the fucking of nowhere. desert. But it's amazing how quickly you get over it, though. Like all of these things once that survivalism are, kicks in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, that's one of those things, you know. Like, I remember thinking when I had when I had the, the ki- a kidney stone. The last time I had a kidney stone, mm. like usually I'm you know I'm quite body conscious. Yeah, yeah. And you know, <laughs> like I've got a lot of kind of insecurities that uh, you know have followed me my entire life. Yep. The pain of this <laughs> kidney stone, like I got, I, you know, I went to, I had to go to hospital mm. for it and yeah. I had to, you know, I had to have all sorts of x-rays and yeah. going to blast things with lasers and do all sorts of <laughs> things. But by the time I got there and they, and they got around to, to seeing me, mm. I was like, I would have been ready if they would have said the way to fix this pain is to strip naked and uh, <laughs> do a do a jig around the car park. Yeah. I would have been there in a second. <laughs> I would not have cared. I would have just gone, okay, if, that, if that's what you say, like you couldn't have kept my clothes on. And that's what, you know, it's one of those things where you kind of, the, you know, when people say modern problems. Yeah, yeah. And, or th- first, first world, first world, first world issues. And yeah. you're like, yeah. you know, it kind of, 
the mere fact that you've got shelter and food yeah. means that the rest of it doesn't well, really matter. I mean, I mean that's that that's probably a walkabout I would pay to see in the car park. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't. It'd be a, it'd be a weird. I I can't recommend Walkabout highly enough. I just think it's a it's a film that works too. Also because um it's a film that doesn't sort of rely on issues. Like there are sort of you know underlying themes going along, but it doesn't pound you over the head with them. It, they, it just lets the story tell itself. You know, and yeah. you got this story of two cultures coming together, just beautifully told without pretension. And you know, yeah, get on it. I think uh, Umbrella put it onto Blu-ray at one point in time. It's well worth a look. How's it going everybody, it's Guillermo here again from ScreenRealm.com, Australia's favourite entertainment website covering all things movies and television. As always here to give you a little bit of an update as to the movie news that's occurred over the last week or so. I Am Legend 2 is going ahead with Will Smith returning and Michael B. Jordan co-starring. That's right, these two big names are on board to star and produce the film, with I Am Legend co-writer Akiva Goldsman returning to pen the screenplay. Deadline broke the news and then Will Smith took to social media with a frame from the first film, no caption, but he did tag Michael B. Jordan. As far as any plot details, they're currently being kept under wraps. No word on what character Jordan will be playing, or exactly how Will Smith will be returning as Robert Neville, assuming he's reprising his role from the first film. The first film had an ending that would make it quite surprising if Neville returns, although there was an alternate ending for I Am Legend released on the DVD that would make this possible. No director has been named as yet, but stay tuned as this sequel comes together. Filming has officially begun on John Woo's first US action film since 2003's Paycheck. The hard-boiled, hard-target, broken arrow, face-off director is directing a film titled Silent Night, an actioner starring Joel Kinnaman. Now, Silent Night will be an action film without a single word of dialogue. The basic plot has Kinnaman playing a father seeking revenge for the death of his son, and yep, that's about all I need to know to sign up. Two names circling major roles in the planned sequel Dune 2. The first is Florence Pugh, who is currently in talks to take on the role of Princess Irulan Corino in the highly anticipated sequel. This character is the eldest daughter of Emperor Shaddam Corino IV, who we didn't see in Dune, but he was mentioned. Also circling is Austin Butler, playing Elvis in Baz Luhrmann's upcoming biopic. Butler is currently in negotiations to play the ruthless Fade Routher, who in the novel is the young nephew of Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. You may remember that Sting played Fade Routher in David Lynch's 1984 adaptation. So as of now, it looks like they're both signing on, although there's no official word on that as of yet. Director Denis Villeneuve will be returning to direct the sequel, with stars Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Zendaya and Josh Boland returning as well. As of now, the film is expected to be released in October 2023. That about does it for me guys, ScreenRealm.com for your latest movie and TV news, trailers, reviews, all that jazz, catch you next time.
of this, something a little bit different. So that was uh, Special Summer, which is a piece of music taken from the first Blood soundtrack by uh, Jerry Goldsmith. It's, uh, there's a survivalist film. 100%. Well, who, but who's doing the surviving? <laughs> That's right. It's not who you think. I reckon those sort of those North American wilderness films are my favourite type of survivalist film well that's you know it's my my major complaint with australia yeah is that i feel that our outback our bush like it is just that it's not a forest it's a fucking bush it's scrub it's incredibly i, I find it incredibly ugly i think Whereas, our, our wilderness be harder to survive in oh 100 percent. like yeah i mean per capita we've got more things that will kill you than any other but country. Also, just less resources to tap into. And less, re- yeah. Like, it takes a lot more than just a basic understanding of drink water. Yeah. Kill this thing to eat it. That's like, right. you don't, don't know what to kill to eat. We don't and have raging rivers that we can actually dip our fucking hands into and drink from. And drink from. <laughs> like, even things like, like stupid looking animals like the platypus have poison fucking hooks. <laughs> like, it is, it, we're, we live in a ridiculous country, but... Yeah. You know, when you look at like the UK or the US and you look at the forests and stuff and you're like, like, okay, you get rattlesnakes and you're like, it fucking gives you a warning. (laughs) (laughs) Brown snakes make no fucking noise. Sneak up on you. (laughs) You know. Yeah. I mean, but I do love those films. Like The Edge was a good one, like with Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. And do you remember Alaska? I loved the movie Alaska. That's the one with Thora Birch and Charlton Heston. No, it's and it was directed by Charlton Heston's son. I don't remember what his name is, and it's just about um, a plane that crashes in like the Alaskan wilderness. Right, presumed everybody's dead, but the daughter and the son of one of the guys on believes they're alive because they sort of had they. I think they got a radio signal for him right before it crashed. Right, so they take it upon themselves to go out into the wilderness, but then they're kind of hunted by this big game hunter that's Charlton Heston. And right. he's a villain, like a real big villain. He's almost like a John Lithgow from Cliffhanger type of villain, right? He's Jeffrey Jones from The Pest. <laughs> I can't believe you mentioned that because keep listening. Um, and the interesting thing is, though, he plays this villain that relies on this gun not to really torment these kids. And yet, at that time, he was the head of the NRA yeah. telling people how good guns, guns are. Guns don't kill like, people. People kill that's people. That's right. Like Anyway. I digress. This is this should be an episode of Rewind Digress because I'm doing a lot of it. <laughs> but look, then there's the post-apocalyptic variety movie, which is kind of what we're here to talk about. Um, we should turn our attention to that because we are about to hear from John Keyes, the director of The Survivalist. Obviously, you've got movies that are kind of post-apocalyptic, like your, your, your Mad Max definitely is. But then you've got The Road and 28 Days Later, 10 Cloverfield Lane, The Quiet Place even. So this is kind of a, a genre that's sort of of flavor at the moment, I guess. It is like I did watch, um, and now I can't uh, think of the name of it, um, with Forrest Whitaker and the guy from all those Divergent movies who has seemingly no personality <laughs> of his own. And it's like, it's actually is like, it's, I found it to be one of the better ones because yep. it is like an end of the world disaster type movie, mm-hmm. but at no point do they ever tell you what happened. Yeah, right. Like ambiguous, they don't know. Like the regular people do not know. Mm. Like they're walking around, they're seeing stuff. Yeah, they're seeing like destroyed military convoys. They're seeing like electrical storms where the they've, rain. They've burns got no you. media cycle to tell but them. Or, they've got know. no. Yeah, power is out for yeah. the most part. The TV is off. They do not know uh, what's going on, and they don't let up. They, yeah. they, there's never. 
They never introduce a expositional character mm. to go. Well, uh, the Russians attacked or whatever. I kind of like that. It's like um, it's like Cube, right? Like that's a survivalist yeah. film, and you don't know. It's ambiguous. How do they get there? Yeah. Why are they there? It doesn't matter. The fact yeah. is, they are, and this is what we're dealing with. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, anyway, let's um. Hang on. Let me just uh, quickly. <laughs> I think it was like it's a Netflix movie, so you can watch it. Yeah, um, Netflix has been banging out quite a few of those kind of films lately. Well, don't say Bird Box. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think I've gone back too far in Forrest Whitaker's career. I'm pretty sure it's it's not too long ago, like 2019. It was a big one. Like they were really pushing it on Netflix. Jesus, Forrest Whitaker. What a what a career this guy's had. And the the film How It Ends is what it was called from 2018. Of How course, of course, yes. That um, that's a thumbnail. It does pop up all the time. Yep. It, like it used to be constantly in their top 10 because it is a Netflix like yeah, a yeah. Netflix original yeah. and I make the uh, the air quotes because uh, <laughs> they acquired yeah, it? it doesn't really exist <laughs> yeah they, they just because they bought it and they bought worldwide rights and they were the first to put it out to put it yeah. doesn't make it a Netflix original sorry Netflix <laughs> so look the survivalist as I said we're about to hear from John Keys look I legitimately like this one a lot I thought it was really good you had some reservations though Look, I've look. I've never been the biggest fan of uh, what's his name, John Reese. It's not John Reese Davies. Jonathan Reese Myers. Jonathan Reese Myers. Yeah. I mean, for the first, like, he's three names <laughs> bothers me. I like him a lot. Like ever since Velvet Goldmine, I've been on board. Yeah. I look. I. I. He's. I just think he's like a. He's such a weird guy. Like I. You know. I. I did like Bendit like Beckham, and every now and then, like a movie of his breaks through, and I. Yeah. And I like it, but. Mm. Like he's he's always an obstacle I have to overcome. What was that one he did with um, from Paris with Love? Was that it with John Travolta that he made? I freaking love that the Luc Besson film. No, I haven't yeah, seen it. That's awesome. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, because that came out around the same time as it, like it was a bad. It was, I felt like it was a dark period for Travolta. It was when he was, was doing like the taking of Pelham One Two Three remake and stuff. Season and and, and yeah, Fu- was it Fury or whatever it was? The one where he's the angry, <laughs> just the. The revenge guy, <laughs> and you're just like, ah, oh. like I mean, I had a lot of problems with taking a Pelham One Two Three remake. As much as I like Denzel Washington, and I actually did kind of enjoy the movie, I yeah. just thought, like, the whole premise of the of the <laughs> the the original movie is that there you can't pick these people out of a crowd. Whereas yeah. John Travolta in that movie basically has, yeah. I'm a fucking cunt tattooed across <laughs> the back of his head. <laughs> And I, you know, and and on the on his forehead is I will kill you. Yeah, <laughs> like he, like they really yes over overplayed their hand with it. But in terms of Jonathan Rhys Myers in this film, like I actually can't think of a better pairing of a father and son than him and Julian Sands. Like it is remarkable. That is pretty good. And Julian, I do like their relationship is pretty good because they don't really get along. Like yeah. Julian Sands is a bit critical. Yeah. Like and Jonathan Rhys Myers is also critical. And you know, look, John Malkovich. I've got a lot of time for John Malkovich, but I, he's playing to type at the moment. Is probably what you. Well, no. Look, I mean, to be honest, I think he's. I think he's probably ten years too old for this. Mm. Like, I, okay. you know, I, it's completely understandable why he's cast. Mm. He's a big name, but do I take a man in his sixties? <laughs> In not and not in like you know he's wow. no uh, he's not in peak physical condition, and I mean, yeah, he's the you know dominant personality leader of this dude, kind to, of cult. To the contrary, though, like I, I actually bought into his character 
perfectly like I just I think he sort of has that um, air of superiority to him like he kind of is the wise leader but we're going to let John Keyes talk about that in a minute and why he was cast and all that kind of stuff but this guy John Keyes he's got like he's almost prolific in what he puts out he's got almost the, almost prolific well I mean he is prolific it depends on like <laughs> your point of view of the type of movies he puts out right um, he's directed 13 movies um, two of them uh, I would say that makes him prolific yeah absolutely two more in the works but he's prophylactic pro- he's, he's prolific he's, he's produced 40 films and Jesus one Christ. of which uh, was Becky with um, Kevin oh, James oh really which, that was fuck, there's a survivalist film for you. yeah <laughs> those poor bastards man that has that moment with the eyeball fuck and incredible anyway um he also produced um the king cobra film with um james franco and christian slater which oh, came yeah. out fairly recently um what was the other one I he did crypto one. with kurt russell rogue hostage also with john malkovic but anyway this is one of the nicest guys i've spoken to in a long time so let's have a listen to that conversation and um we'll come back afterwards for those survivors who are still with us make sure your guns are clean and find a way to protect yourselves You can A, give us the girl, or B, we will kill you and take the girl anyway. It's going to be a long night. The girl is my destiny. Your destiny is going to get you killed. Hey, John, welcome to Good Movie Monday. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. No, it's my pleasure, mate. Look, this film is, um, it's a really striking film and highly entertaining. Um, I want to start with the obligatory question or, you know, can you describe this to our listeners? What is this film about? Those that have never heard of it, what are they, what can they expect? Absolutely. I can say, I always think of uh, the survivalist as a post, uh, a post-apocalyptic Western. That's kind of the pitch that I always get, but basically it's about, it takes place a year and a half after the COVID variant has wiped out about 90% of the population. Civilization has collapsed. Marauders run the countryside and such. And so the movie's about Jonathan Reese Myers, a former FBI agent who is living on his family's uh, hereditary ranch. Um, you know, ridden by guilt because his father died. He felt like he couldn't protect him. And so he's a he's a survivalist, you know. And what we've got is a group of marauders led by John Malkovich who are hunting a woman that is supposedly immune to the virus. And the their idea is if they capture the woman, they can breed a new population that's immune to the virus. She ends up at the ranch, the Marauders end up at the ranch, and we have the classic Western standoff between John Jonathan Reese Myers and John Malkovich. Fantastic stuff. There's so many like classic tropes in there that just sort of adapt really well to this new kind of environment, which I really loved. Um, so how long did this how how long's the film been around for? Have you been on board with it from the get-go? I, I was. So so funny enough, we were this is November, just before the pandemic actually became a thing. Um, so I guess that's November 2019. And we, the producers that I work with, they, they had contacted me and they were like, hey, listen, we need you to put together an action movie. What can you do? And a writer that I'm good friends with, Matthew Rogers, um, Matthew and I were actually together on a movie set in Syracuse, New York. And so I started talking to Matthew about it. And Matthew's like, well, let me come up with an idea. And so while we were working, producing this other movie, Matthew came up with the idea for The Survivalist. No idea about COVID. It wasn't a thing yet. You know, we're only like two months away. And 
he wrote the first draft of the script. He and I, I, he and I developed the story together and then he wrote the first draft of the script. And that first draft was done right about the same time that COVID sort of took the spotlight in the world. And so, yeah, so it's, it's only been around since November, 2019. And of course, once COVID hit, you know, that spring, everything shut down. Um, and the original version of the script wasn't specifically COVID. It was a non-described, you know, pandemic. Um, but by the time things opened up enough for us to start filming again here in the States, um, we decided to take it, to change it to COVID. And the funny thing is, is at that point, we we decided, well, let's go with a variance, you know, several variants further out so that it's yeah. not, you know, so we came up with COVID Delta. And it just happened that at least here <laughs> in America, it came out just as COVID Delta became a thing in the US also. <laughs> well, I mean, there's no better way to connect the film with the audience than to scare the shit out of them with a bit of reality. <laughs> exactly. And I hadn't even thought about it. I was actually doing the audio commentary for the Blu-ray um, just a couple of months before it came out. And as I was, as, as I was talking on the commentary, it suddenly occurred to me, oh my God, we're talking about Delta and Delta's a thing right now. Yep. Oh my goodness. Um, what struck me probably most about the production was the production value. Like you've made really good use of locations and the whole tone of the story. I'm guessing the script dictated the tone, but did you draw upon any influences from other films or anything to sort of create the look of the film? Not, not specifically. I mean, definitely Westerns were a thing. I mean, we, we referenced a lot of classic Westerns, John Wayne, you know, Rio Bravo, you know, things like that. We referenced uh, 310 to Yuma um, and some movies like that. Um, Austin, Austin, who's my director of photography, we, we started working on it together very early, um, coming up with a look of the film where we wanted to keep, we wanted to have some of the grunginess of a post-apocalyptic film, but also having some of the style of a Western film. And so we were looking to kind of create those. And Kaylee Masson, the production designer, he and I have known to work together for a long time. And so we we kind of embraced all of that. And Kaylee was the one who found this ranch, found this location. And I mean, when we showed up, he called me. He had, we were running out of ideas. We were running out of spots that we all really liked. And at the last minute, he get a he got a call. It was like, hey, turn north, drive a mile and a half. We're waiting for you to check out this place we just found out about. And it was an old horse ranch that was in the middle. It had just been sold. It had just been bought. And so it was just empty. And we showed up there, and particularly you've seen the movie it doesn't give anything away but there's a big you know in, in the house and then all of the barns there's a big open space in between all of that a big courtyard and we affectionately nicknamed it the okay corral and uh -huh. you know so there were so many things about that location that we just embraced that helped to you know elevate that western vibe to the movie Oh, absolutely, and, and done so bloody well, if I might say. Uh, and let's we can't talk about this film without talking about the amazing cast. Can you discuss the process of securing such big leads for the film? Like you've got Jonathan Rhys Myers, John Malkovich, and then in support you've got Julian Sands. It's a huge trifecta. How did, oh. how did, how did you get all those? So, so funny enough, so in the August, we, we shot, I directed a movie called Rogue Hostage about four months before The Survivalist. And John Malkovich happened to be one of the stars of that. John and I clicked, we became very good friends. And as it sort of ended, he he called me up and he's like, listen, if you've got another movie, I'd love to do another movie with you. 
So as Survivalist came around, I called John and I was like, hey, John, here's a new script. Here's another script. Would you give it a read? And, and John read it and called me back immediately. It was like, we've got to do this. Yeah. So that's how John got on. Then Jonathan Reese Myers, we knew his manager uh, pretty well. And we had discussed a lot of different names for his, for his role and just decided, yeah, let's go after Jonathan. And, and Jonathan read the script. He responded really well. He was you know, happy to jump on board. Julian was really funny was so John Malkovich and Julian Sand are old friends all the way back to the killing fields, whatever that is, 30 years ago or something. Mm -hmm. And John called me up one day and was like, hey, have you cast, you know, Ben's father yet? Um, Jonathan's father. And I said, no. And he's like, listen, I talked to Julian. Julian would love to work with you. I just spoke so highly of you and Julian would love the role. So we ran it by the producers and the producers thought it was a great idea. The funny thing is, as we found out, so, so uh, Julian had starred, I think it was in a Michael Winterbottom movie many years ago. And Jonathan Reese Myers had been hired to play the younger self of Julian Sands. And so, because they looked so much alike. So playing them as father and son was perfect, but they never actually met on that movie set. So, yeah. you know, whatever it was, 15 years later, they both showed up on set for the survivalist, um, you know, and got to do it. And then we got Lori Petty also to do the voice of the radio operator, which, which I, I wanted a very distinctive voice for the radio operator since we never see her. I had her in my head, didn't think we could get her, but I caught, but her manager, her agent is a friend. And so I rattled off this, these other names, knowing that it was a client. It was like, you know, anybody like this? And he's like, well, what about Lori Petty? And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? And so we got Lori. Lori was amazing. She did such a great job just doing that voice throughout the movie. That's fantastic. You know, I can't think of a better father-son pairing in movie you know, in the last 10 years at least. Like, it's so perfect, those two as father and son, as I'm watching, I'm like, this is just made to be, you know, absolutely. Oh, is it, you know, it, you know, the more I found out about their own history, obviously where they've been cast as, you know, yeah. the, themselves, it's, it's, but they clicked so well on set. And, you know, we spent a lot of time working together. Cause I mean, I mean, obviously like a lot of the really big emotional, dramatic moments of the movie are really between Jonathan and, and Julian. And the two of them just embraced it and just nailed it. I mean, I watch, I still watch, I mean, I, you know, with the edit and everything, I think I've seen the movie like 300 times, but I still watch their scenes together and I get completely enthralled by their performances and what they're doing as father and son. Absolutely. And, you know, we have these preconceived notions of certain actors in our heads. And I've always thought that John Malkovich would be one of those sort of difficult or, you know, hard people to work with. But you make it sound like it was a piece of cake. Oh, John, John Malkovich is one of the most enjoyable actors I've ever worked with. He is truly a distinguished gentleman. And I mean, obviously, I mean, he's a legend. He's a pro. And so as a director, you want to get out of his way. You want to let him bring everything to the table that is John. And so, and because John and I already had a shorthand from the previous movie, this made, it made the survivalist an even more enjoyable experience working together because we had that shorthand and I knew what he was going to expect. He knew what he was going to get from me. Um, and so it, it, we mesh really well. We're, we're, we've become really good friends and he's just so gracious and giving to the cast and to the crew. And he's a joy to be around with. And I even produced another movie since then that John is in also. Oh, awesome. Uh, what's that one called? That one's called White Elephant. 
or something like that for that one. Yeah, and yeah, it comes out in a couple of months, I think. Brilliant. Um, what I loved about his character in this film is there's a lot of ambiguity there because you know he's the villain, but he's not a villain. Like his his motive is you know good, and yet it shows what happens to men when you know you've got a good intention, but you know, and there's a bigger game at play. You know, Absolutely. He really, he really had that that ambiguous sort of nature down pat. Well, that's one of the things that, thank you for saying that, because that's one of the things that John and I spent a lot of time talking about, because even when Matthew was writing the script, I mean, there's the old adage that a bad guy never knows that they're a bad guy. And so we never wanted the, you know, the mustache twirling villain <laughs> out of that, out of that role. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to us because there's even the dynamic. So Jenna Lee Green from Sabrina, the Teenage Witch, she plays Marley, the counterpart with John Malkovich. And we even kind of structured the idea that John is a fanatic, but Marley's a zealot. And so the two of them got to play that dynamic as well. And it really makes John not a villain. I mean, we, he really believes what he believes and he believes he's doing a greater service for the world, you know, yeah. of what's going to happen. It just happens that you're trying to kidnap a woman and breed her. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, not dude. a good thing. <laughs> no. um, yeah, there's so much in this film for people to sort of you know, get stuck into. It's fantastic. But if I can take you right back for a moment, I'd like to sort of know a little bit about your story. You've literally made dozens of films. You know, you've been working in the industry for over 20 years is filmmaking all you've known like you know is this you know have you it's lived and breathed it since you're a kid no it's funny is i grew up i grew up wanting to be a writer and not even specifically green uh, screenwriter i thought novelist or something like that but i wanted to be a writer my whole life and i even eventually became an entertainment journalist so i was 28 29 i wrote a screenplay thinking that i would sell it and never had any intentions of being a director being a producer or anything like that and a friend of mine said, you know, you should just go make this movie yourself. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Sure, why not? And it was called American Nightmare. And it came out, it was a big hit, but I, it, it, I absolutely fell in love with filmmaking. Absolutely fell in love. So, so it's, you know, for the last, I guess it's been 22 years now, I live and breathe movies, you know, writing, directing, producing, but no, I never intended to be a filmmaker. It came, you know, late in life, so to speak. Oh, that uh, gives hope to those of us <laughs> that are <laughs> entertainment writers you know, who write scripts at the same time. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I tell everybody, I mean, I speak at, you know, I get invited to speak at conventions and, and universities and stuff like that. And I tell everybody, you know, you never know what your, your next dream might be. But if you've got a dream right now, embrace it, grab it, never let it go. And, you know, follow the course of, you know, follow your whim, whatever makes you happy. <laughs> amazing great advice um and look it's been really amazing chatting with you um the film is fantastic everyone should get out and watch it and it is available on dvd and uh, video on demand thanks to eagle entertainment here in australia um we've got copies to give away so keep your eyes on our website and um john it's been such a pleasure mate thank you for the chat no you're welcome enjoy i enjoyed it thanks a lot glenn I don't remember our name. We haven't been on in six months. Bonehead Weekly Fun Funsies. No, it's, it's fun funsies. Size. No, it's funsies. James. Fun either way, it's both lies. We are neither fun size nor funsies. But we can all remember one thing. Parts of us are fun size. No, part of us are just the really not even snack size. But we can all remember one thing. Ben is a jack. Ben's oh, face is a jack. 
is it sorry ben she, i had a she's going. got she's got the jack yeah ben's got the jack acdc aren't they from down under i came from a land down under are you did. uh not we're not that down under there's more than one down under well we're talking about survival. i'm a mole person we're talking speaking of mole people we're talking about the survivalist films and if you all like survivalist films as much as we do i don't How know is that a transition <laughs> feel like mole people survive shit they do. They do. I mean, if you've seen some mole people have films, you ever they, seen, they survived the Fantastic Four constantly. Yeah. Oh, well, I was actually thinking. And and how many times has Hans Molman of The Simpsons died, and yet we see him the next episode? And I know Glenn does not get the Fantastic Four reference. It's okay, Glenn. That's okay. <laughs> so who wants to go first with our survivalist film? Uh, yeah, you want me to? Go. Yeah, I will. Somebody go, 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 go. Okay, go. I will. I'm going to talk about the best survivalist film that stars Lance Henriksen, written and directed by Don Coscarelli. And I am talking about Survival Quest. Yeah, if you want a survival film that a lot of people don't remember, check <laughs> no out. No one remembers. And it has the cast the, of aliens in it. Yeah, it's it's Lance Henriksen, Mark Ralston, Steve Anton, uh, that one Mulroney that people like. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Survival Quest is basically, a, it's kind of a group of, is a camp basically for adults that want to learn how to survive and they're being trained by lance hendrickson who is a no-nonsense going to toughen them up and all that stuff but then things go sideways when there's a paramilitary team that is sadistic and bad and evil and they decide they're going to target these wannabe survivalists and that's the film but if you like don coscarelli uh or lance hendrickson and i like them both uh, it's a movie by Don Coscarelli. A lot of people don't talk Said about it 13 times. My turn. 19, 1986, the movie was made, did not get released in the United States, though, until 1989. I'm going to talk about my favorite Joe Carnahan film until Chad tries to steal it. I didn't know. The Gray with Liam Neeson. The That's Gray is about a man who's ready to blow his brains out. Who ends? He's a sniper for wolves on the Alaskan or up in the coldness pipeline while the people work. And they the plane crashes and they have to survive and he's the spoiler alert he's the last survivor and he's suicide it's just it's my it's actually one of my favorite movies does he rise up to the challenge of his rivals <sighs> it's one of my favorite films if you've never seen the gray we can't be no i guess we could be friends we just can't be friends if you don't like it all right well i you know when they end with me i always got to end up on a high note so we we saw two really top-notch survival films so i have to end on an even higher top-notch survival Ch- and chong made a survival film you're close john leguizamo's the pest <laughs> i feel like uh, we just talked about this the other day we did just talk about this the other day which is why it came right to my head i am an unapologetic fan of john leguizamo in the pest uh directed by paul mirror paul miller man i cannot talk tonight uh, it is about which different from any other night no you can talk sometimes goodly yeah <laughs> it's about a con man who lives in miami um and he's conned into going to this island uh by uh Sadly, the man who don't, we can no longer talk about, Jeffrey Jones. I think um, we can still talk about him. I just don't wouldn't allow him to babysit your children. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but uh, he goes to this island, and, and Jeffrey Jones is a Nazi who is hunting him on this island to kill him. And, and John Leguizamo has to do all these different impersonations to hide from him. Some of them not very uh, would not be done today. They were okay for the early 90s, needless to say. Right. Uh, but yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's kind of fallen into the obscure uh, John Leguizamo in all seriousness, John Leguizamo is one of my favorite actors. 
I love anything that he's in. And this was one of those ones where he got to take the reins and just be completely insane, which is one of the reasons I really love it. So the pest. I want to welcome back Ben. Gentle, gentle Ben. Yeah, I'm sorry I'd screwed up that slam on you by not calling you an ass face. I don't know where Jack came from. <laughs> ben Bonehead Weekly, fun side. Good Movie Monday is made possible with the support of people like Viewdorium. Viewdorium is a streaming platform for rare and obscure movies, and it's absolutely free. They also have a catalogue full of kids' flicks, classic movies, foreign cinema, and more. Visit Viewlorium.com today to see what it's all about. And before that, we had the Boneheads. Thank you, guys. I tell you what, I didn't see the pest coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I completely. I to tell you the truth, and I, 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 I have a soft spot for the pest. Yeah, same. What is the pest but hard target? <laughs> well, I was gonna say it is. It's the most dangerous game. Yeah, like that's a hundred percent what it is. Yeah, but my like I watched it in the video store. Like I put it on in the morning where I knew that I was gonna have zero to <laughs> to very few customers, and I could just watch it. And all I remember is the opening credits, like the oh, him in the shower. What? <laughs> yeah, and uh, and I remember thinking it was great. Yeah, and then I watched it again. It's pretty racist, and uh, yeah, but it's <laughs> the thing is, if you're a minority, you can do it. You can be racist <laughs> if that's if if his little Chinese character was pretty funny. <laughs> and but like I couldn't tell the difference between his Chinese and his Jewish. No, like that's his, true. Uh, that's true. <laughs> his wasn't very. But um. But I know. I mean, yeah. I think for me that was like I didn't realize. I thought that was the movie that kind of introduced the world to John Leguizamo, no, but no, no, like he'd already been around for a while. He'd already done Spawn at that point, I think. Yeah, I think he'd done yeah. um, Executive Decision. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, he's like he's not a lead in any of those movies. Because I do recall well, Spawn, reading about it? the pest and people like you know, the write ups at the time were like, you know, he finally gets his own movie, that type of thing. That guy you yeah. always see in the background or whatever. Um, but also, awesome choice from Joe with the grey. Yes, it, which I, look to be honest, I you sent me the list of m the movies that had been chosen already because yeah, yeah. I usually I usually don't pick my movie until Friday morning. Yeah, and I don't want these things to clash. So <laughs> and I, you yeah, list. so you sent me the list of what other people have talked about, and I was like, ah, oh, look, I, I've been looking for an excuse to watch The Grey. Yeah, because for some reason it's it's the gap in my Liam Neeson gotcha uh, filmography. So I watched it. It's pretty fucking awesome. And it is pretty fucking great. And it's got Frank Grillo, who is yeah. fast becoming one of my favorite uh, actors. Yes. And he ha he's, he's ca his character is the one that has the best kind of arc mm -hmm. across the film because he starts off as a real piece of shit. Yep. And then he kind of he kind of comes good while still maintaining the truth of his character. Yep. Uh, it's really good. Like, I didn't even... And because of the beard and the snow and stuff, I didn't recognize Dermot Mulroney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he stuff. had a beard in Young Guns. <laughs> yeah, like I, it's not that I have never seen him in a beard. I just couldn't. You yeah. didn't because it's so dark. The mm. movie is quite dark. I tell and you stuff. what, it's scary too. It totally like the wolves are totally. And I didn't. I remember reading years ago that the wolves are CGI. Yeah, yeah. Like which pretty totally understandable. Like there's no way you'd want to do no. any of that stuff. But it's well done. But it is like my only problem with it is is that the wolves are just a little too smart at some point. Like you know. The fact that they 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 you know they jump off when they jump over the cliff onto the tree, the wolves are behind them. Mm. One guy falls, lands on the ground. The wolves are there. How the f they didn't jump off the fucking cliff? A new pack, my friend. You know, <laughs> yeah. 
And yeah. look, and you find it as you find out what happens at the end of the film, you kind mm. of understand yeah. what's happening because it does sound like at any given time, like <laughs> I guess there's that part where they're running from the plane to try and get to the trees mm. to find cover. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> then there's like, they're being, it's like a, a pincer movement oh, no. where there's wolves coming in from both sides and there seems like there's <laughs> 10 wolves. Then they get into the forest and next thing you know, there's like a hundred wolves. Well, we've actually just gone anyway. and spent more time talking about the grey than Joe actually did. But um, <laughs> the Bonehead Weekly Podcast is found on pretty much every podcast platform. And next Friday on the 25th of March, which is the 26th in Australia, they're going to be recording a live episode from the Lexington Comic Con in Kentucky. So that will be well worth listening to if you can. Live. And I will say, look, they always joke about only having one listener. So <laughs> if you get in there, you'd be listener number two. That's right. And if you comment on anything, they'd definitely they'd be all over you. Absolutely, I might act, might do that. I might set up some fake accounts and <laughs> <laughs> show them some love. No, they are a great podcast. Get onto that. But hey, I want to quickly mention too. You may have heard that little commercial there for the View Lorium. Want to welcome them back into the fold. They used to um support our show. Uh, back when Jarrett and I hosted Franchised and Rewind and Digress. And it's really good to have them back on board. So um, visit their platform. It's a free movie streaming service. It's um, dedicated to obscure and alternative films. Lots of classics, kids flicks. I was going to say the classic selection is amazing. Yeah. So definitely, definitely do that. A forgotten demographic that seems to have been ignored by all the other streaming services, save for maybe Amazon Prime. And that's that's often shit versions, shit... um, quality uh, prints of the same public domain stuff you've seen 200 times, so, whereas this selection is actually pretty pretty darn amazing. Definitely. So dive into that, um, sort of explore their catalogue a little bit. And if you live in New Zealand, have a look. I think they've got extra content over there. And if you've got a cheeky little VPN, maybe you can jump in and, and have a look from Australia. I'm not going to give that a go uh, <laughs> when so, I get home. Our recommendations, mate. We've got one more each. Um, I'm going to let you go first again, oh. <laughs> if you're ready, sir. Thanks. Thanks, <laughs> mate. Uh, funnily enough, like like I said, this is kind of connected to, um, to uh, uh, the Admirable Crichton because it's very similar. Admiral Crichton 2. Yeah, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> I uh, know this is a. Uh, I don't know why IMDb does this. Uh, does what? It always goes to the. I mean, when I talk about 1974 swept away, and when you look it up on IMDb, it automatically pushes you towards the remake. <laughs> yeah. And I'd want to talk about the remake as well, but <laughs> the remake is. I mean. You know, it's not good. Last week on Up Late, Chloe and I talked about the Madonna sex book, so you could tie that in. Ah, I, I've got a copy of the Madonna sex book. It is very sexy. I, I don't did, know why Vanilla Ice makes a cameo. I know. I, and I did post the um, uh, PDF version of the book for people that are curious. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Not safe for work. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Though, Unless you work in a brothel. By or... today's standards, pretty tame. Like Kim That's Kardashian. True. Like Madonna's got nothing on Kim Kardashian. That's true. It's true. Uh, and Madonna has never told anyone to just work. <laughs> like, release a sex tape and have rich parents... But, you know, be willing to work. Fuck you. Uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> Come on, recommendation. So this, yeah, it looks 1974, uh, swept away. It's directed by uh, by um, Lena Vert, Vertmuller, hmm. or, or Wertmuller, depending on how you want to pronounce her name. I've heard uh, different uh, interpretations, different... Uh, I've heard, uh, does Ben Stein say her name like... Wertmuller. 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 <laughs> 
That's a bad joke. Over and over again. Uh, but this movie stars um, Giancarlo Giannini, mm-hmm. who I suppose most people are going to know from Hannibal or the Bond films yeah. uh, most recently, but he's been in a lot of stuff. Um, he's great. I love him. He's great. Yeah. And uh, and my personal, one of my favorite actresses of all time, and only from this film and one other, mm. is uh, Mary Angela Malato, who is General Gala, Carla from uh, Flash Gordon. Okay. But she's also the uh, she's the uh, the lead actress in this, and it's a very look. It is a, like a warning. This movie deals with some pretty kind of heavy stuff. It's a dark film, and the sexual politics, the politics and the sexual politics are pretty uh, questionable, dangerous. Okay, dangerous. They're Ooh, dangerous. I like it, and it is it is quite. But basically, it's it's very similar to the Admirable Crichton. It's this rich, um, these rich. Three rich couples mm-hmm. are on a cruise, and one of them um, is just uh, played by Mary Angela Malato. She's just a total bitch, especially to Giancarlo Giolini, who's one of the the people hired to work on the boat, and he's just filling in for someone. Yeah, um, and they, you know, everyone else on the boat, they they're getting paid really well, but he's this is in the seventies in Italy, and he's a communist. And they're clearly capitalists yep. or fascists. Yeah. Um, and so he, he has problems with them right from the start. Sure. And he is a, like, and that is one of the kind of things I think a lot of people kind of, uh, miss when they watch this film and get offended by it yeah. is that he is just a bigger, as big a piece of shit as she is. Like they're yeah, both yeah. horrible, horrible sure. people, but she like picks on him for everything. And to a degree, she's not wrong. Like he does serve them shit food because he can't be fucked making it properly. Yep. He does wear, like he wears dirty t-shirts because he has poor personal hygiene. He's looks he looks like a fabulous one of the fabulous furry freak brothers. Well, like he's just got this kind of line, round <laughs> lion's mane of hair. Um, I love that. But he's like, yeah. So he's problematic as well, and that he. She constantly calls him out on stuff and he just gets angrier and angrier. Well, also, the perception of a character like his is different whether you're in like America, per se, Australia, or over there. Like, the whole yeah. perception of communist is different. Is different. Yeah. yeah. And the Communist Party were a legitimate party in yeah. the 70s in yeah. Italy. Like, it is definitely, you know, they they love that shit. They yeah. love that Whereas stuff. Whereas in America, you get blacklisted. Yeah, that's right. You know? They were not. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you weren't you weren't crucified for being a communist. You <laughs> yeah. weren't blacklisted. Yeah. They weren't terrified of communism because they actually understand what communism yeah. was, not the Americans who just think, oh, it's Russia. Yeah. That's what That's communism right. is. Yeah. Like, no, it's an ideology. Yes. Uh, but all that aside, but then, you know, the movie goes on. She demands, like, she wakes up one morning and everyone else on the boat has ever has gone off to explore these caves. Yep. And they've left, they haven't bothered to wake her up because she's also a bit of a bitch to them. Yeah. Um, so then she demands that um, Giancarlo take her. And he's like, oh, look, I don't think it's a good idea. Mm. It's getting late. And there may be a storm coming, you know, and she, but she ignores him and insists. And they go off. And of course, there's a storm. Things happen. They end up stranded on this desert island, yep. and that's where it gets real. Starts to get really dark because he almost immediately <laughs> decides he's not going to take her shit anymore, yep. and he's going to turn the tables on her. And it does he belt her? He he repeatedly beats the shit out of her. Jesus, like it is pretty kind of hardcore. Yeah. Um, 
There's a lot of slapping. It, 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 it is, for modern audiences, I think it would be quite difficult to watch. Yep. But there, if you do a bit of research into the film mm. and you can understand where um, Lena Wertmuller is going, it does... Yeah, it does lessen lessen that, but it's still even then it was still shocking. Of course, and once um, again, always apply context when you watch these things. Yeah, yeah. it definitely requ- requires that, and the 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 power dynamic between them is is quite interesting. Mm. But yeah, and it, look, it, yeah, look, I saw. I think Des Mangan introduced this movie to me on SBS. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. back in the day, it is definitely worth worth, worth watching. It was remade in two thousand and two <laughs> by, by Guy, Guy Ritchie, Ritchie uh, for his then wife Madonna. And the guy who plays the the Giancarlo Esposito, mm. uh, Giancarlo Esposito, Giancarlo Giannini part is actually his son, his real life son. Yes, weird. Um, the problem is, and look, it it changes it changes style. Like after the opening credits, it's a, it's a weird. It's, a it's got some weird to the original. Well, it is and it isn't. Like it's pretty, <laughs> like beat wise, it's pretty spot on. Yep, but. It leaves things in. It doesn't. It's got it a doesn't, light, lighter touch. It, it does have a lighter touch, but it well, not really. Like he still does. He smacks Madonna around quite a bit on that island, uh, and but she's probably ten years too old for the for the role, um, to really be kind of taken seriously. And she's not really good enough. She's not like like Mary Mary Angelano. She hasn't got Mary Angela yeah. Mulatto is like a phenomenal actress, and it. The movie, the original is, it's almost like a screwball comedy. It's yeah. just a really like black yeah, yeah. screwball comedy. Whereas this one, it's, they actually sympathize with him a lot more mm. because she is horrible and he to a degree is not. And it's not so much a, like a, a battle of the genders. It's a battle of the classes. And, well, they yeah. both, they both definitely are. Yeah. It just, yeah, because it, they are different sexes and there is, there's a kind of like love hate and the thin line between love and hate kind yeah, of relationship yeah. going on. They both have similar endings. Mate, it is a very it's although they they actually tame it down. Yeah, they make him they make him a lot more sympathetic in the Guy Ritchie movie yeah. than he is in the um in the in the Vertmuller uh, version. Um, they're both I would say look they're both w- worth watching. Like you could watch them back to back. Yep. Uh, Bruce Greenwood is the husband. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, is uh, is the husband in the thing? Ginny Triplehorn is um, is one of the the rich um, friends. <laughs> Elizabeth Banks it makes a very early appearance <laughs> as as you reckon. Okay. You recommended the remake, or <laughs> I look. I I do reckon like it is like it, the the remake is you know acknowledged it's, as one of the worst films yeah, ever it's made. Very harshly judged, and it is. I mean, look, it, it's an odd choice for Guy Ritchie. Yeah. It's not that the, and it's not that they've chosen a bad film to remake, but I think if you, they've kind of ignored a lot of the historical context or they've tried to, they, either maybe they're not aware of the kind of historical context and the political context that the original film is. So when they've remade it with none of that in place, yeah. it, it's actually just he becomes just, quite he offensive. He just wanted to work in holiday. And it's like the the scenery, the, yeah. the soundtrack, the the cinematography. It's all great, you know. Everything is good. It's just like, well, Madonna ain't no Mary Angela <laughs> Mulatto. I have got a recommendation with beautiful scenery. This is a 1986 film that mesmerized me as a kid. I can't remember how many times I watched this one. Is this Butt Woman Three? <laughs> Return to the Butt. Uh, close. Uh, it does star Helen Mirren. Oh, oh, hussy. This, it's hussy. <laughs> it's um, Peter Weir's The Mosquito Coast. 
Uh, it was Harrison Ford. Yes, Harrison Ford. Helen Mirren, Martha Plimpton's in there, but River Phoenix is also in there. This is a remarkable film in my mind. Uh, the story is about a husband and a father who's just fed up with the state. And they're, they're different people, two different people. The husband <laughs> and the father are two different people. <laughs> he's characters. a man who happens to be the husband. <laughs> and a father. And a father. Um, but he's a bit of a neurotic and he's really... Uh, he's an inventor and he's, 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 um, and when does Robert De Niro come into it? He's fed up with the way society is in decline. The com- consumerism has taken over. Right. And oh, so he's, he's Michael Douglas in Fallen Down. <laughs> Dude, let me get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> and he packs up his family and he moves them to a piece of land that he's purchased in the middle of the Central American jungles. Um, and it's on the Mosquito Coast. And the family, they're uprooted without warning. He just does it. Doesn't give them any time to you know, prepare for it. And they just sort of, they sort of um, follow his beck and call. What he wants, they do. And um, they rebuild their lives literally from scratch in the middle of the jungle. And it's very much a, a Swiss family Robinson style of thing. They build this gigantic house, but he's got all these contraptions that are hydro and, you know, very clever. And it looks like paradise. But then um, it kind of gets really dark because Harrison Ford's character becomes so overwhelmingly out of his depth in this environment that psychosis begins to take over and he becomes paranoid even more and the reality of what he's done to his family sinks in but he sort of reacts against that in a in a more negative way not only the harsh jungle environment but he's dealing with gangs and cartels and that all comes into it because he's in their territory and stuff like that and it becomes so sinister that it's almost like an apocalypse now spiral right um which he was in yeah that's right just stunning i think it's peter weir's best film by a mile um and you know the interesting part of me there's a new tv series of the mosquito coast really right yeah with justin Theroux playing the character yeah right it's on apple i'm four episodes in and it is a masterpiece unto itself however they've turned it much more into a breaking bad kind of show because i'm four episodes four episodes in and we're not at the jungle yet, right? So, right? Is it called Mosquito Coast? It is. But here's the interesting thing is that I only realized because of this show that the original novel, which Peter Weir's film is pretty much verbatim story-wise, was written by Paul Thoreau, who's Justin Thoreau's uncle, uncle and Louis Thoreau's father. Yeah. Right? But Paul Thoreau produced this TV series. And as far as TV shows go, it's one of the best I've seen in a long time. But it does not resemble the original story, one iota. Right. So instead of being like, he's still an inventor that's neurotic and paranoid and, and fed up with America. But instead of picking up and leaving because of that, he's actually on the run. So they're forced right. to leave America. Right. So the government are after them. And no, you don't know why it's ambiguous. Like Harrison Ford's The Fugitive. Yes. <laughs> he, he is like, you know, he's on the America's most wanted list. And right. anyway. Because he's built his own... Uh, perpetual motion machine. The whole yeah, the whole concept is that um, you don't quite know what he's done wrong, and his family doesn't either, except for his wife, who's played by Melissa George. The kids don't know. But Melissa George, she's so good in this. Like it is, if you like Breaking Bad, you'll enjoy season one because it's like Breaking Bad, and then presumably season two when that comes, which is very soon, it's going to be the whole we're on the Mosquito Coast, right? Uh, rebuilding our lives, but um. Anyway, I've, I've sort of you know, rambled on that one, but yeah, The Mosquito Coast with Harrison Ford, Peter Weir film, Helen Mirren, it is awesome. And this is the movie that got River Phoenix the role in Indiana Jones because Harrison Ford said, hey, there's this kid I just made a movie with. He's incredible. And Spielberg put him in as young Indy. Yeah, right. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. 
Hello and happy Monday, friends. I'm Chloe from Movie Night with the Richie Girls and I do need to start off today by saying a quick I am so sorry about my losery stuff up last week. What an absolute blonde moment I had and I am really very sorry. But I am here to make up for it by offering up some more praise on yet another survivalist movie that I absolutely adore and surprisingly came second to Jungle last week. We're talking Hannah Montana, we're talking Double Tap, we're talking Infected Hamburgers, and we're talking Bill fucking Murray. You will know it as Zombieland. Starring Jesse Eisenberg, Emma Stone, Woody Harrelson, and Abigail Breslin, this 2009 dystopian survival flick gives off all the good old naughty vibes. Thick eyeliner and uh, thick fringes is where it's at, and I am here for it. This film is really what kicked into gear my love for zombie movies and uh, really made me start coming around to Woody Harrelson and just how brilliant and diverse he is. Now I can just hear all the OG zombie horror fans absolutely hating my guts that these are the movies I choose to revere, but uh, honestly, the humour tied in with the hint of horror and survivalism is just something that I personally can get behind. Apart from the fact that I'm absolutely convinced we will all live through a zombie apocalypse, okay, live might be you know, not the most appropriate word, but this movie does provide us with such a great set of rules to live by when the time does come. My favourite rule? Enjoy the little things. But the most practical to survive by is double tap. Make sure that thing is dead. I wasn't a super fan of the second instalment, but uh, I'm sure that comes at no surprise. As much as I love Luke Wilson, I did kind of find his character annoying, which I guess was the point. But what I will say though, is give me a ditzy blonde in a dangerous setting and I am smiling. So Zoe Dutch, you nailed it. All in all, I am a definite fan of Zombieland and it is rare that I can crap on this long about something that I don't love. Uh, so give it a watch or give it a rewatch and I want to hear the rule that you'd live by when the Zompocalypse raids upon us. This has been my brain-eating opinion, and I'm sticking to it. Bye, friends. So, Ben, what, like, for the uninitiated, like, who, who might be listening that don't know what a video hoarder is, what, what's a video hoarder? It's someone with poor financial management skills <laughs> who spends <laughs> all of their money on trying to relive their dodgy childhood. <laughs> By filling their uh, houses, their basements, their storage units, and uh, any other nook and cranny in the house uh, with uh, videotapes <laughs> that uh, may or may not may or may not play, because <laughs> half the time, like if they if, if if that that video hoarder is anything like me, they buy the tape, maybe ten years before they <laughs> put that tape on, <laughs> it may not work. How do refunds work? Well, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, eBay. <laughs> oh, well, with that in mind, like you've got your hands, uh, you know, mixed in a, a pretty cool web series called Video Hoarders, um, but I don't want to hear about it from you. Uh, the real driving force behind that is Rob Taylor, who just so happens to be here with us right now. Hey, Rob, how are you, mate? Good, very good. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, doing good, man. Thanks for joining us. Um, series three, dude. This is awesome stuff for people that are listening that don't know about it, can you give a really brief kind of um, run-through on the backstory of what the show is and, and what inspired it? Um, well, well, I mean, the simple answer is it's it's a show about VHS. It's it's a documentary series. Um, we've done... This is this will be our third, we've got third season coming up, series coming up. 
And um, basically, I just um, go to people's uh, houses and um, document their VHS collections. So you're obviously passionate about the VHS. Do you prefer that format over any other? Oh, uh, yeah, look, I wouldn't say I prefer it. Uh, <laughs> Let's not go crazy. Glenn. <laughs> so okay. what is it about it, though? What is it that drives this passion to go, you know, traipse in the globe looking at VHS? Well, I mean, look, I've always been a massive movie lover and um, was never very well off. So when VHS became cheap, um, I just extended my collection um and then the love kind of just moved from there i suppose like yeah like i say like a dvd started coming out and 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 everyone was moving to that and i was pretty poor so i thought you know two dollars for a for a movie on vhs was um was a pretty good deal so and then it just kind of escalated and 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 you know i just been collecting ever since and um i just thought it'd be it'd be uh a great idea for for a documentary series, uh, particularly for Australian collectors, because um, we're pretty passionate about our tapes. They're a lot different to anywhere else in the world, and in my opinion, they're the best in the world. Um, <laughs> Certainly more durable as far as the the casing and the covers go. <laughs> yes, yes, that is true. That is true. So series three kicks off, um, I think, later this week on uh, March 18th, if I'm not mistaken. This feels like a much bigger deal, series three, like you have gone around the world. Like I said, I think you're in Canada in this one. Uh, how did you end up there? <laughs> well, funnily enough, um, when I when I released series one, uh, I got a, a message from a, a guy on, on Instagram who said how much he, he loved the show. And I thought I got chatting to him, to him, and thought, oh, you know, that's really cool. And I checked out his profile and realised he's the drummer for for the band Green Jelly, which was my. Funnily enough, that was actually my first ever VHS that I bought was a Green Jelly tape. You know, when I was like, I don't know, twelve or, or something, and um, that just blew my mind. And and we became really good friends uh, for a couple of years. We always talked about getting him on the show. And I just thought, screw it. I'm going to go over there. And um, I hooked up a few other collectors while I was there and just kind of ran with it. Yeah, cool. And that's featured on, what, episode one, is it, I think? It's, it's, yeah. it's a pretty awesome episode, man. Like, um, you know, I, I was also a fan of Green Jelly back in the day. I, I should still be, but I kind of fell off the, the wagon. But um, you've kind of put me back on it. But how fucking awesome to go, like, ravaging the basement of someone that you idolise, man. Yeah, pretty... It was pretty surreal, that's for sure. Probably more surreal the fact that he's he's a fan of yours. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's it's quite, it's quite bizarre, but it's it's fucking awesome. It was really cool. Like he he didn't know I was coming. Um, I sort of, I got in touch with his wife online, and we sort of organised a surprise surprise meeting with him, um, which was which was really cool. It's something I'll never forget. Yeah, we're really good friends, and and that's how that's how series three came about. Cool. So it definitely has a different kind of flavour to the first two seasons, which is pretty cool. Um, like you kind of you touched upon it earlier. What like the biggest differences between like the culture of VHS collecting in Canada versus Australia? Did you did you find that there was a difference, like in attitudes, I guess, and stuff like that? Probably the difference is Canadians, you know, North America in general, they collect their tapes for the films. Um, I'd say more 
in Australia, we collect the tapes for the aesthetic of the actual physical tape. Me, for example, like I collect some of the shittest movies you'll ever see in your life. <laughs> um, basically, mostly because the artwork's cool, you know. Yeah. Um, whereas over there, they're, they're, they've got some cool tapes, don't get me wrong, but most of them are kind of generic kind of cardboard boxes um, and they're just not as, as aesthetically pleasing as they are. You know, my days when I, when I was like over in Canada, the video stores back when it was still VHS, you know, the display cases on the shelf were still the cardboard ones, but they had like specially cut styrofoam that went inside them to have them display on the shelf. Like there was a whole industry of styrofoam makers for the VHS. Supported by the supporting the VHS community. Yeah. Do you find like do they have clamshells over there? They've got some. Like the Disney tapes were in That's right, yeah. The Disney ones were in clams, but for the most part they were the cardboard boxes. Like they're very like they're producing tapes on such a massive scale. Yeah. Their the budget like definitely comes into it. So they were the ones who kind of pioneered the cheaper the cheaper cases, like it, I think, because clams here, clams in the UK, clams in Europe, as far as I know, like America is the only place that had those cardboard cases, which mm. a lot of collectors here hate. Yeah, I actually don't. I don't mind them too much, but I can understand it because when you take your tape off the shelf, the mm. tape slips out and falls on the floor. Yeah. It's like a ridiculous design, <laughs> or or it's too tight, <laughs> or yeah, or you can't get it out without damaging the case. Oh shit! And for for anyone listening that doesn't know, a clamshell is like a soft plastic case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a big a big box yeah. in the American terms, the big box. They 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 do have they do have clamshells there, um, but it's it's a, it's not. It's not a, like the old roadshow ones and stuff like that. Like we had the big fat ones. We had the yeah. huge ones, but they also in America they had they had bigger cardboard boxes that came with flip covers. Yeah. Like the MGM, MGM did a whole line, but a lot of the porn and stuff, they came with it. They came in these big boxes that look amazing and you kind of, you open them up yeah. and they're like, they're, they've got like, it's, it's like a square cutout base. So the artwork goes all the way around and it's mm. like this amazing package. Yeah. And you're like, these look, these look, so they look, they, those ones do look a lot better than our, even our ones, I think. Yeah. yeah. But even over there, they're like they're few and far between. Mm, sure. Well, I guess for people wondering what the hell we're talking about, there's going to be those that know exactly what we're talking about, but for the others, they're going to have to tune in. So, Series 3, I said, drops on the 18th. Um, where is that dropping? Is that on... It'll be on the MonsterFest website. It will be where you get your first look, mm -hmm. uh, but they'll also be on YouTube and yep. uh, and there'll be links through the MonsterFest and Video Hoarders social media pages. Amazing. So, everyone should hit them up. But Rob, thanks so much for like crashing our little show here, mate. Like, we really appreciate your time. Um, we're actually, we're about to wrap things up, but we are, um, we're going to play the trailer for series three for people to have a listen to. And, um, there's going to be a bit of a green jelly surprise at the end of the show. So dude, thanks so much for, um, for checking in. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, I am keen. I'm so keen. Should I go first? I'll go first. Holy shit! It goes all the way around there. Fuck, man. Everything in this basement brings me back to my childhood. So where are you finding these, man? I mean, these are some seriously, seriously obscure stuff. You kind of find one and it leads into another. And it's like contacting people that were in the movies and things. Ah, all right, so you go straight to the source. Oh, everything here was on my list, and then I got it. So just like... You just add it to it. Yeah, I just keep adding to it. How many tapes do you think you have in here? I have like 
5,500 tapes. Oh, dude, I love this film. Shockstock started just as a small event. We did a VHS tape swap and a couple guests, and then people showed up, and the community kind of found themselves, you know what I mean? And relationships started, and since then, we've just been getting stronger. <laughs> I ended up being found after the fire was put out. Whoa. So I ended up in a coma for 14 days. What are some of the ones that, that made it out of the... Definitely my Twilight Zones. Kurt Russell is just the man, really. Oh, he's so sexy. Get inside me, Kurt Russell. <laughs> <laughs>
similar to this cartoon. Yeah, but I'd sure. love to. I'd love to. If any, if anyone out there knows this cartoon I'm talking about, please. I would fucking love to see it in the comment section wherever you found this podcast. Just drop us the answer. Yeah. Um, I would want to recommend um, Riddle of the Stinson, which I talk about at every opportunity. It's a movie that got lost and is only now actually available on YouTube. And every time you say it, I think of Riddle of the Sands. <laughs> it's the one with um, Jack Thompson and Richard Roxburgh, directed by Chris Noonan, who was um, from the George Miller Company. Was it? Kennedy Miller and the original print was destroyed in a flood so the only way you can get it is an old TV broadcast version that's on YouTube on YouTube beautiful right. film Touching the Void's a good one you know that documentary and The Bear that's a, that's like a survivalist film from an animal's perspective it's all yeah. you know about a bear cub that's on like its own to fend for itself I like, I like the ones where the bears like backcountry and yeah. uh, where the bears are attacking people BJ and the bear it's, no, all, it's always Bart the Bear yeah it's always Bart <laughs> Like the most overworked actor in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's in Alaska. The movie Alaska, that is. Who else are they going to get? Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're about done, mate. Well, uh, I want to back up and just thank a few people. John Keyes, particularly, genuinely one of the nicest guys I've interviewed. So he is welcome back on the show at any time and he actually wants to. So there's something. He should just join <laughs> us on the desk one day. Oh, that'd be good. Uh, don't forget, The Survivors is out on DVD. So grab a copy. Thanks also to. Through uh, Eagle Entertainment. They are through Eagle Entertainment. Thanks also to Rob Taylor uh, for popping in on this episode. Don't forget, Video Hoarders Series 3 kicks off on the 18th. And a massive shout out to Viewlorium again, uh, the alternative movie platform streaming platform that is go and check them out quick whip around to the team uh thanks to jarrett guillermo chloe joe chad and james and all of you who listen thank you muchly appreciated don't forget to catch us on facebook instagram youtube all of that stuff and my interview with john keys is going to be on youtube tomorrow night so you can check that out as well actually check it out on facebook preferred platform which listen to the podcast Either way, if you want to see us, if you want to see him, if you want to see him react to my genius line of questioning. Razor like wit. <laughs> and of course, Ben, thanks to you, mate. Tasty, tasty episode. Very. Not uh, much of you left. I've been enjoying that throughout the show. Too much, too much fish in this episode. A lot of, a lot of movies that where people survive by eating fish. <laughs> I prefer Benjamins. Yeah. <laughs> Bring on the Benjamin. Uh, and as a final plug for Video Hoarders, here's a song by Green Jelly. It's called Misadventures of Shitman. It's a great song. <laughs> it's from the album The Serial Killer Soundtrack. It's a great album too. That was like a staple back in my uh, teen years. Have a good week, everyone. We'll catch you next week when we're going to talk about some really obscure film franchises. Join us for that. Ciao. <laughs>
Gott. 